Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the PE Live podcast series, Energy Oracles. My name is Paul Hicking, Editor-in-Chief at Petroleum Economist, and I'm delighted to be joined by Halima Croft, Serial OPEC Watcher and Managed Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. I was going to start off and ask you a bit about your journey to start with, really. And you've become this OPEC insider. You've clearly, from a perspective that most of the people who are an OPEC insider are from the region or Saudi-based, and you've become this kind of close confidant of the regime And from an outside perspective. Maybe you can share a little bit about your journey from being just an analyst, in one, an energy markets analyst, to this kind of OPEC whisperer, so to speak. Well, you know, I have a very non-traditional background to being an energy analyst. I did a PhD at Princeton in economic history. I thought I might end up working for you know, the World Bank. And I ended up instead joining the CIA as an analyst right after 9-11. I walked in the door at the agency on December 1, 2001. And it was a really interesting time for U.S. national security because there was a real emphasis led by then Vice President Cheney on energy security. And diversity of supply was seen as the route for the United States to become more secure when we thought about, you know, our oil supply. And remember, at the moment, in 2001, that's when there was this view out there. Remember Matt Simmons saying, essentially, we were running out of oil. And so there was a really big effort to try to forge new partnerships with a whole host of producers. And I actually started working on some of the big African producers. I covered Nigeria as an analyst. And so I had a different perspective to thinking about the world. And I went to the Council on Foreign Relations as a fellow, visiting fellow. I was on one of their task forces on energy and national security. And so by the time I showed up at Lehman Brothers in 2005, I had a background looking at markets through the perspective of national security, through the perspective of how do governments think about their resources. So it was a non-traditional background that took me to working on Wall Street as an analyst. Uh, interesting. And then you walk into another drama, which is Lehman Brothers, but maybe that's for another day. Um... But I think when you come to OPEC, I think that's a great kind of question, because I'm not sure I think of myself as an OPEC whisperer. I think of myself as somebody who sits in the OPEC basement. I, I think I once said to the, the Minister of Energy in the UAE that I think of myself as a basement dweller, one of these analysts who spends a lot of time sitting in the OPEC basement and really trying to follow the policies of the countries that are thinking about production policy. Like, how does the Saudis think about production policy? How does it differ potentially from an African producer? So to me, I think of myself as somebody who just puts a lot of time in Vienna thinking about, from the perspective of OPEC producers, how do they see the world? And I think I try to, as a research analyst, think if I were sitting in the shoes of this minister in this country, how would I think about my resource? And as someone who's, as a journalist, has been down that basement with you and had the terrible sandwiches that they offer, although at least it's something while you're waiting for it. Oh, but don't throw shade on those cookies, though. The cookies are fantastic. But let's fast forward to this current meeting and put that into perspective about how did you see the Saudi Arabia move, this going alone with a one million barrel day cut? 
you know, there's been a lot of talk in the market since, whether it's a strength or a weakness, how much it's about sentiment versus the physical market. You know, how did you read the cut, and especially in terms of the Saudi cut of going it alone, but also being part of this group? So it's interesting because going into that meeting, and I can send you my research reports if you want to see this, we actually thought there was a pretty high chance that there was going to be a significant production cut. I think we had it at 750 to a million. And we thought the moment they decided to go in person, remember, we had that April surprise, you know, JMMC, which is not supposed to be a meeting where they announced production changes. And we had the surprise decision of a number of countries led by Saudi Arabia to make additional voluntary cuts of 1.6 million barrels a day. Once they decided to go in person in June, I thought, you know what? a cut is at least on the table for consideration because they could have done what they did in December, which was go virtual after the October cut. So I always thought that getting all the ministers together in person, going through the whole machinery of hosting a meeting in Vienna, you know, working with the Vienna authorities to bring in these delegations, I thought this would be an active policy discussion. Now, there has been a lot of after the fact discussion about the fact that the Saudis did this alone. Some see this as a sign of weakness. I actually think that it just came out of the, the negotiation. A lot was actually on the table at this meeting. I think it was really important that they address this issue of quotas for 24. Clearly, this issue about the UAE having made investments in expanding spare capacity, wanting to monetize those investments, that had to be addressed. And so the fact that they got that done at this meeting, and also they had to then deal with this issue of some of these underperforming countries, like to me, they were getting so much done that I actually saw the Saudi cut as a sort of part of the larger bargaining process that was taking place over a whole host of issues, that this was sort of the Saudi contribution not only to managing the market, but also managing the negotiation process. But that said, I think that when the Saudis make a cut, if you're thinking about how do you plug this into the balances, when you have these collective decisions or a group of countries doing voluntary cuts, you then always parse like how realistic is it for all of these countries to fulfill those obligations. So if you think about the 2 million cut that we saw in October, everybody quickly was like, is this really 2 million? Are all these countries really going to comply? Is it more like 700,000? Is it Saudi plus the traditional Gulf states that will comply? When it's a million barrel a day Saudi unilateral cut, you start to really think about that's a million coming off your balances for July. So I do think that at least it means from the standpoint of like your balances that you can take that million off. If it were a million spread across OPEC plus, I don't think you could plug a million into your balances. On two levels. One, how do you see this production cut is like Africa and Russia? Because obviously... There's big question marks of Russia's compliance to what they might well do in the April agreement and also around what you said, they're given the agreement to appease the UAE. But on the other flip side, we've got potentially unsettled or upset African nations as well, even if they do have the capacity constraints. Do you think the production cut from the Saudis was kind of a sweetener to some of this to get everyone on board as well? 
I mean, they called it the lollipop. And so I do think that it was the, I don't know if it was the carrot to get to sort of get everybody to sort of say, okay. I mean, think about a negotiation. Successful negotiations tend to happen when not every side is entirely happy with the outcome. I think that this was a way to get everybody on board and at the table for the press conference. But again, I also think there was a real market perspective for the Saudis as well. I think, you know, the fact that you had His Royal Highness Prince Abdelaziz really talk about being back in draggy mode, I thought was really interesting because I always think of him as the Greenspan central bank guy as opposed to the draggy central bank guy. So I was actually listening very closely when he said we're back in whatever it takes mode. Because I think it's just a sign that the Saudis want to show the market that if you think about shorting us, at least we're here to put in the floor and we're going to stand on the other side of those saying that oil will be in free fall because of sentiment. Like we're here to basically be activists and do whatever it takes. And so I think that was important for signaling for them to the broader market about we're intentional. We're not going back to the 2015 experiment because there are a lot of market participants who really believe that the Saudis are just poised to resume the battle for market share. And they also think, are we about to be in a March 2020 moment because Russia has taken market share in India, taken market share in China? I think the Saudis were really keen on signaling a We're not going back to a market share war. Nobody thought that period was beneficial for the OPEC producers. And I think they also wanted to signal that they're not particularly worried about Russian gains in Asia. And I think that is something they're still kind of facing some skepticism of market participants who keep saying, like, look what's happened in Asia. Look what the Russians have done. We've always said that I think it's important to look at the other side of the globe because Russia has actually lost access in their most important market in Europe. Remember where we were this time last year, there was deep concern that Europe would be facing an energy crisis that could lead to deindustrialization. And so when you had the European Union move forward with a six package of sanctions that included an embargo on Russian seaborne oil into Europe, but also the ban on the provision of services to move those barrels to Asia, there was a concern that you could be looking at a 3 million barrel a day disruption. And so part of the ask of Middle Eastern producers was when the Russian barrels were shut out of Europe, that they would reroute barrels into Europe. So there was this view that you needed to have a sort of reworking of the energy map to prevent a major shortfall. And I think we forget that was actually part of the diplomatic ask that was made to these Gulf producers. And so Again, I think about the question is, yes, you know, Middle Eastern producers have had to cede some market share because these cheap Russian barrels are now moving or cheaper are moving into Asia, but they're also moving into Europe. And that was part of a specific ask of these countries by Western nations in the period right after these sanctions were introduced. If I can take you back to what you mentioned at the beginning, which is about the comparisons to Draghi and Greenspan and uh, the act of the Saudis acting like a central bank for oil. Now, I want to get your view on the fact that, yes, you know, we've talked about the Greenspan put, but also don't central banks usually try to signal to the market more these days? Isn't there more of a keenness to signal what they're going to do? And 
to create stability? And is there a risk that the Saudis, by creating this kind of surprise element, is the risk of creating more volatility? There's the argument of like it potentially hurts hedging, it creates more uncertainty. Or do you think the fact is that there is some certainty in the fact that they will act around the $70 barrel mark or wherever you see the kind of implied price floor? That's such a great question, Paul, because I think obviously Greenspan is the guy who was like, if you know what I'm thinking, I've not done my job right. Because remember, Greenspan was the one who was always known for the famous mumble. You're not going to know what he's going to do. He wanted that surprise element in the market. And remember, Prince Abdelaziz, originally, that was the way he operated. I actually think there's been a really consistent thread to Saudi policy. Like to me, they have been super clear that they are going to be activists in this market. And so I look at everything they've done since October. And to me, it's a consistent, when you see this, you know, significant decline in prices, when they see, they look very closely at positioning, by the way. And so when they see the positioning being very bearish, I think you can presume that they're looking to come in and get on the other side of short sellers. So to me, I don't think we should be surprised by anything that they've done. So I actually think the signaling has been pretty clear. And that's part of the reason why we've been consistently saying that the Saudis are standing on the other side of those who are making bearish bets. So I don't quite buy the idea that they are consistently surprising us. Yes, April, you could say, well, is that really a policy meeting? They came in with this surprise announcement, but it's a surprise announcement that's consistent with everything that they have said. And so I actually think there's a clear logic and clear signaling of intent. But to me, it's surprising that I constantly get calls still by hedge funds saying, well, we've just heard the Saudis are angry at the Russians and are about to go back to market share. To me, that is what's surprising. Like, What evidence do we have that there is any desire to resume a market share war by the Saudis or any desire to essentially just sit back and be passive in the face of deteriorating sentiment and questions about the demand outlook? Since the Saudi move, oil prices haven't been in a bullish position. Do you think it's really just a matter of waiting for those actual physical barrels to come off the market to see some sort of turnaround in maybe the macro environment with China and the US to really see inflation under control in the US to really see a real China recovery, confidence in China recovery before we start seeing that turnaround in prices and that price moves up towards 80 or $90 a barrel. Do you think it's just that? Or do you think there is a sentiment of physical gap going on? What, how do you read it? I mean, I think that we have a, I don't want to call it a sum of all fears scenario, but I do think that at a minimum, we could talk about this being a show me market. And remember, again, we talked about a year ago, let's go back to a year and a half ago with the immediate onset of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there was an expectation that we would see this multi-million barrel day disruption and the multi-million barrel day Russian disruption never materialized. And Even a year ago this time, we were thinking about, oh my gosh, this price cap plan that they're talking about just isn't going to work and we're going to see millions of Russian barrels off the market. And that disruption never materialized. And we've had signs of strength of Russia, despite all the other sanctions that have been put on this country. And so I think that you have a market that has essentially said, well, you told us this was going to happen. It's not. You oversold the strength of the China reopening. We basically thought, you know, zero COVID is over and it's like 
it's going to grow like gangbusters and it was more muted. And so I do think that those are the stories that have contributed to the skepticism in the oil market. Besides just the other concerns about recession and slowdown, I think it was really the reopening that was more underwhelming and a Russian supply shortage that never really materialized. And so those are the kind of psychological headwinds that the Saudis are having to contend with when it comes to OPEC policy. But when we think about this summer, I do think that we should wait. We should judge the OPEC decision that they just took based on how does the market look when those barrels start coming off. Now, we also have the SPUS SPR sale winding down. And so let's get back together in six to eight weeks, Paul, and we'll talk about you know where we are in terms of market balances. But I think that is when we should really judge the efficacy of the action that was taken. Yeah, that's a good point. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this spat between the IEA and OPEC, if we may. Do you see us this classic consumer versus producer debate and the idea that maybe in the past or in the recent past, there was kind of a 65 or 60 to 70 dollar barrel sweet spot in the market. And now the sweet spot no longer exists where producers and consumers are there. Or is that just a consequence of the fact we've had this global economic weakness? And that sort of means that they, it's very hard to find a position where Prices are high enough to create investment and to producers happy, but at the same time be low enough to assuage consuming countries like China and the US. I think that is all contributing to this. But I really do think that I look at the moment where I think things became more difficult. I think about that report that the IA put out talking about sort of the changes that need to happen in terms of investment in oil and gas in order to reach these net zero goals. You know, I think Fatih has made the point that that has been misconstrued, the sort of no new investment in oil and gas. But I think that that report did play a significant role in the friction that we see between these OPEC producers and the IEA. And then there have been issues over secondary sourcing, whose data do you use? But I think that that report, the way it was construed, that the IA was essentially out saying there can be no new investment in oil and gas in order to reach these net zero goals. Like I think that was a contributing factor to some of the discord that we see. And I even think you know today we have again the IA saying that there's going to be a massive fall off in demand in a short period of time. I think the OPEC would challenge that assumption. So I do think, A, they see the world differently in terms of outlook for oil and need for investment. And I think that, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a personality issue going on as well. But clearly, the relationship is not what it once was. Yeah, it's true. And I think the Saudi said at the time, what, la la land? And I do. I think that was, I mean, think about there had been differences over outlook before between OPEC and the IEA, but think about the reaction to that report. And I think that was really kind of a key moment in the relationship. Yeah, it's true. And just to talk a little bit about that investments scenario, how do you see this risk of, of an investment crunch, given that there's been talk about we need, you know, the Saudis and the OPEC on one side are saying we need higher oil prices for, to encourage investment. Otherwise, we're going to have, there's a risk of a shortfall. But then you've got the IEA and other, some other forecasts talking about potentially peak demand quite coming quite soon. Right. I mean, the question is, again, what is the demand outlook? You know, that I think is going to be critical to the question of do we actually hit this ingressing crunch? 
But I think there's a geopolitical story to this, taking it back to my first love, which is the geopolitics of energy, is that who is going to be making the investments in oil and gas? And I think that we are heading towards a situation where it's going to be a handful national oil companies that are going to pursue the all of the above strategy because they don't have to answer to shareholders about sort of ESG mandates. They believe that they have the lowest cost, lowest emissions barrels in the Gulf. And so I actually see a situation evolving where over the medium term, even if the pie is shrinking in terms of demand for oil, and we can debate how quickly it shrinks or not, you're going to have a handful of national oil companies having that dominant share. And an energy transition, even a rapid energy transition, doesn't mean lower energy prices you know, along the way. I think there's going to be volatility. And so I do think that if you think that these Gulf states are going to see an erosion in their economic influence in a rapid energy transition scenario, I'm not sure that's going to be the case, actually, because again, I think they will be last man standing when it comes to investment in oil and gas. Yeah, and I just want to take it back on that point as well, which is this idea of Saudi Arabia going alone in terms of the one million barrel a day production cut. In some ways, people were seeing like when OPEC acts, it's de facto leader, Saudi Arabia is really what it's about. So this production cut by the Saudis is kind of that exposed policy of the Saudis really acting anyway. And you're talking about the evolution of OPEC and OPEC plus and the Gulf states. It seems like more and more of the market share will be in the hands of the Saudis, the UAE, the Gulf states. How do you see that impacting OPEC and OPEC plus and and its market management strategies going forward. I mean, that's why I think it was really important that the UAE issue was solved now. I think that is kind of an underappreciated agreement that they made because that had sort of been hanging in the ether. Remember, there were all these stories, and we wrote about it, saying potentially the UAE, because Adnak had made these investments, would look to monetize that. And how do you allow UAE to have a higher quota? How do you resolve this kind of issue about Who gets to produce what in the organization at what speed? And so to me, the settling of that issue with UAE, the fact that you had, you know, Sohail Masri and His Royal Highness walking out of the secretariat holding hands, to me, that was like the important resolution that came out of that OPEC meeting in advance of COP28. I think it's really important now that UAE pivots towards this really important climate event that they're hosting at the end of the year. So I think solving that issue was critically important. I think that the African producers, I wrote in my note that they should receive the Grace Under Pressure Award because the issue then turned very quickly to how do you solve this issue for now under these underperforming countries. These African nations had to make really quick decisions on whether they would accept a quota reduction. And I wrote about it from the perspective of Nigeria, a country that I had covered Right after 9-11, Nigeria was producing in 2001 around 2.3, 2.4 million barrels a day. There had been an expectation that they would produce 4 million barrels by 2010 because of the investments in deep water. And so the fact that we have Nigeria now on any given day producing around like 1.3 million barrels a day, I think of that as a tremendously sad story about what happened to this really important energy producer 
And the quota reduction, you could say, was bowing to the reality of what has happened in the Nigerian energy sector. But I think it's a sad statement about the failure to meet expectations and what potentially happened in that country that didn't allow them to realize those ambitions, which they need for the development of their, you know, their population. And so to me, like they had to quickly make the decision whether they wanted to sort of formally accept a downward revision in their quota, reflecting a sort of a difficult reality that they were facing right now. And so I think the fact that those countries made that decision and decided to do it and showed up at the table at the end, I gave them my award for basically, they were the ones who helped ensure that that deal got done. Yeah. And in some ways, the UAE is as important as Russia to the whole OPEC plus agreement, to holding up the glue that holds it together. So I just want to finish with one last question for you, which is more about your role in the energy industry. And, you know, as someone, as a woman and a woman of color in the energy industry and the fossil fuel and oil industry, I just wanted to get your perspective on how challenging that be, what opportunities there's been, you know, how much sisterhood there is within the energy industry, like, yeah, Paul, that's such a great question because you have spent time. You've been an OPEC basement dweller, eating those sandwiches and cookies and going to the sausage stand across the street. But you've seen who also sits in the basement. To me, like I look at least at the journalists who cover OPEC and think about, you know, all the fantastic women journalists who are women of color who sit in the basement and cover the industry. So I actually feel like when I'm at OPEC, and sitting at least with the journalists who also make it their career to cover this group of producers, there are a lot of women down there who have names like my name, who have skin color like my skin color, who are covering this organization. And so actually covering OPEC has let me be around people who actually look a lot like me. I've actually felt there's a sisterhood in covering it, but I've also, I think about the tremendous diversity. And you've seen that when you sit in the basement with everybody who's covering it, we kind of look like the UN General Assembly, not the Security Council down there. And thanks for listening to NG Oracles. For more information, please check out Petroleum Economist, Hydro Economist and Carbon Economist. Thanks for listening.